It's good to have you with us this morning. Today is Baptism Sunday. We're going to be doing baptism at the tail end of our service today, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. And again, giving people an opportunity who have not signed up to be baptized to be a part of that this morning, if you would like to. Um, But we're going to continue with our series this morning in Acts chapter 18, in our Unstoppable series, Acts chapter 18. Look at that, chapters 13 through 28. There are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. We are almost at the end of this. Because the next couple of weeks, we actually do larger chunks with looking at larger themes. But we have gone through this year and part of last year, the entire book of Acts. Last year, we went through the entire book of Romans. Like, that is awesome to be able to do that. And if you've been following along and tracking, that is truth that can be planted deep in your heart. And every week that I spend time studying and researching and looking back into it, I always see something new that I've never seen before in Scripture. I hope you have that experience Um, Because God's word, we could never mine the depths of God's word and get to the bottom. There's always a level deeper. There's always something more that he has for us. Not to fill our heads with knowledge and intellectualism and wisdom in that regard so that we can just puff ourselves up. It's so that we can be closer to him and have a relationship with him. So I'm excited um, to go through Acts chapter 18. Um, I like to ask a couple questions sometimes when I get started. This morning, the questions that I have written on here um, are questions that I've asked myself over the years, and maybe you have too. Uh, why am I here? Why am I here? And I don't mean why am I here at Bridge Community Church or why am I here in Lansdale. I mean, why me? Why am I here? Why was I born? You know, and I'm not looking for a biological answer. Well, you know, when a man loves a woman. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Why am I here? What is the significance and the purpose of my life? What am I created to do? You know, every once in a while I have these aha moments. And I had one last night when I was looking at some, some history and I was thinking of some of the people that I've, I've studied or I've, I've, I've read or listened to uh, in the faith, in the church over the last 20, 30 years and how many of them have passed away in the last 30 years. And it hit me again to say, you know, that will be me one day. That will be, unless Jesus comes back before then, that will be all of us someday. And I started thinking about it saying, what is my purpose here? What am I created to do? Is there a mark God has called me to leave in this life for family, for friends, in ministry? What is it supposed to look like? This morning, I want to talk to you about something that probably none of you thought about this week, and it's genetic predetermination. Okay? You're like, huh? What's that? Genetics, I'll just say genetics. Some of you know genetics a little bit. You've heard the term genome or genetics, right? If you were a science person, you played with, you know, peas when you were in science class because they talked about the different genes. Some of you are like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. But that's okay. Here's what I know. All of you are familiar with genetics, Okay, because all of you understand that there is some type of biologically coded instruction in you that was passed down in the form of traits or qualities or physical things. Could be physical, could be personality. They're passed down to you from your biological parents. Okay, that's part of the whole genetics thing, right? So sometimes we look like our parents, sometimes we act like our parents, sometimes. Well, sometimes neither. But we do have qualities, and we do have traits that are passed down from our parents. Those qualities can look very different in many different ways. And each of us are genetically predetermined in some ways to display certain traits, skills, or qualities. I'll give you an example. When you are born, your height is genetically predetermined. Your body knows what you're going to grow to. It knows it. 
It doesn't need to figure it out as you're getting older. Now, there are things that can influence that, right? But your body is predetermined to know that. Um, I was reading a while back and I was uh, doing some research on North versus South Korea, you know, and how it is actually, you know, really one country, one people genetically, but they're, 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 you know, communism versus a free democracy. The people of North and South Korea have the same genetic makeup. They're the same people, but the people on average in North Korea are six inches shorter than the people in South Korea. And why is that? Because of nutrition. So they're genetically predetermined to be the same height in general, but the outside external influences influence the result. Does that make sense? So just because the outside things may influence, it doesn't mean that you still were not created to be a certain way. Does that that make sense? You guys following me? It's the same thing with your eye color. It could be the same thing with other types of skills that you have, artistic, musical, athletic. You could be incredibly gifted and have a gene to be very, very musical, but if your external circumstances create no opportunity for you to develop that and grow that, it doesn't mean that you weren't created to be excellent in that. You just never developed it. Does that make sense? So genetic predetermination is important this morning. Um, Sometimes it's really good. And you can look back and say, you know, I got this from my parents. Sometimes it's really bad, like this slide. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, this is just a staged thing, guys. Like, he's not really bald, you know. Everyone's saying awe, but, you know, <laughs> hey, I'm there. You know, I understand. Sometimes the things we receive and pass down are positive. Sometimes the things we received and passed down are not. I'm sharing this with you this morning because the same principle applies spiritually that we are genetically predetermined by God because we're followers of Christ, when you are a follower of Christ, to be a certain way. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit this morning. Um, Before I do that, I want to read the passage in Acts chapter 18, um, and then I'll talk about how this relates to this passage. Now, just a little background, because we're now going to look at the second half of Acts chapter 18. This is the end of Paul's, the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, Paul and Silas, they are now on the second journey. They're revisiting a lot of the same cities that they went to and planted churches in before. And during this missionary journey, they are strengthening and building a lot of the churches that they planted. A lot of the believers, that, those that became believers, are reconnecting with Paul and, and Silas. So in Corinth, in the city of Corinth, he was there and he meets a Jew a Jewish man, his name is Aquila, and he was married to a woman named Priscilla. Some of you have heard the two names before, Priscilla and Aquila. They were actually from Italy, and they had to move to Corinth because Claudius ordered all the Jews out of Rome. He kicked them all out of Rome, so they had to go back to some of their home areas, and where they landed was in Corinth. Every Sabbath, Scripture says, Paul would go to the synagogue in Corinth, and he would reason and try to persuade Jews and Greeks about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that Jesus was the Messiah. That's what happened. So the scripture says that Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. That's the background. And he was teaching the word of God because he had a vision from God that said, you can stay here. You're not going to be harmed. A lot of the places he went to, it was in danger of being stoned, killed, abused. Here, Paul said, stay here. So for a year and a half, he stays in Corinth. But now it's time for him to leave and to move on. And that's where we pick up Acts chapter 18, verse 18. It says, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sencrie because of a vow he had taken. 
They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it's God's will. Then he set sail for Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Verse 23, after spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia. He strengthened, I'm sorry, Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. Remember that. Apollos was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. Verse 25, he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Verse 27, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Okay, let's pray. Father, may the words in your word be planted in our heads so it can transform our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, do you know what your purpose is if you're a follower of Jesus? Do you know why you're created Do you understand how you're wired and what God has created you to be? There's clues in this passage that I want to talk about this morning. And it's really more like a, um, it's more like a a take act two from last week when Matt Spranger from Kaiafla came last week to speak to you all. The clues that we see are in verses 23 and verse 26. Because in verse 23, it says that Paul traveled throughout the region, and look what it says, strengthening all the disciples. Okay, So one of Paul's priorities when he went back to all of the cities and the towns was to strengthen all disciples. And then in verse 26, it says Priscilla and Aquila spoke to Apollos and, quote, explained to him the way of God more adequately. Okay, Those are the two, two clues. What are we talking about this morning? Discipleship. We're talking about making disciples for Jesus. If you're looking to understand what your purpose is and what God has birthed in you to be about, he has created you to be disciple-making followers of Christ. We cannot be thriving followers of Jesus and not be disciple-makers at the same time. You hear what I'm saying? It doesn't go one or the other. If we're going to thrive and we're going to be who God has called us to be, we are supposed to be disciples and make disciples. Today's message is called Reborn to Make Disciples. Reborn to Make Disciples. Why? Because the church in motion is reborn to make disciples. Think about that, what it says. The church in motion, that is the church that's actively thriving and growing, is not born, it's reborn. You know, Christians are born again, right? Some of you have heard that term before. It's not a physical birth, it's a what? 
spiritual birth. And in the process of our spiritual birth, the DNA, the genetic predetermination that God put in our hearts with his spirit is to make disciples. Think about that with me just for a moment. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Many of you have heard this scripture before. It's the great commission before Jesus leaves the earth after the resurrection. In 18, it says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, Sometimes people confuse the command in here is to go. And especially evangelists like to do that and say, you're supposed to go. Go is the assumption. The command is make disciples. Jesus, actually, the better translation, I believe, is as you go, make disciples. As you go, make disciples. And what is he really saying? As you live your life, as you move, as you live, as you relate with others, as you fellowship with people, as you share, as you work, be a disciple-making follower of Jesus. That's what it comes down to. There is no room in Scripture that we see in the Gospels and throughout the New Testament where Scripture says, become a follower of Christ, then go selfishly live your life and do whatever you want, and then at the end you get to meet Jesus and everything's wonderful. Like that's, that's a man's version of Scripture and Christianity. It's not God's version. God's version is when you have been created anew, You have a new genetic code in you. And this is why this is so important. And this is why when I was looking at it this week, I'm like, wow, this is, this is really good. Like I'm really excited for myself to talk about this. Um, Because the, the, the command to go make disciples, if I'm being honest with you, how many times I've heard pastors, leaders, conference speakers talk about it and they talk about it with passion and genuineness and it's authentic. But many times I do like a self evaluation of my life and I think, man, I'm really a mess. And I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, how many times I've listened to that and say, I just, oh, wow, I really need to go and do some major work. And, you know, there are times that that there's truth, that that's truth. I need to go back and I need to rethink my priorities. And I need to reevaluate because I still have this shell of a person that wants to live for me as opposed to living for God. So that is true that it happens at times where I do listen to those messages and go, Yeah, I need to make some changes. But then there are some times where I just feel like I'm placing this weight on myself to do something that God never intended for me to do in my own strength. Making disciples is not a command he's given a human to do in human strength. He commanded them to make disciples, but before any of that happened, remember, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said, go. He goes, you, I'm sorry, before that, he said, you must go and you must wait in Jerusalem until you are what? Clothed with power from on high, and the power he's referring to is his spirit. And it was when the spirit of God filled the believers that Acts 1.8 became possible, became a possibility. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. They were uneducated, mostly, everyday, low-key guys, fishermen, people that didn't, I mean, traders, <laughs> traders to their own people, tax collectors. They, they were everyday people that probably stayed in the general region of where they were. And Jesus goes to them and says, you are going to change the world. You are going to change the world. 
There is no way possible they could have done it in their own strength. They needed to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. And when God's presence was poured into them, they were regenerated. And a new DNA was put into them. And the power of the Holy Spirit began to show them how they could be effective witnesses, not just where they live, but through the rest of the world. This is a message all through Scripture. This is a message about the transformation that happens in the heart of every believer. You know, um, there's three things that I just want to mention briefly this morning about this. One, in John chapter 3, Scripture says, you will be born again. You will be born again. Christians are born again. That's John 3.3. 3. That's Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And he said, unless you're born again, you can't inherit the kingdom of God. And he said, well, how can I go back into my mother's womb and be born? He says, we're not talking about a physical birth. We're talking about a what? Spiritual birth. Christians are born again. Your spirit, which was dead, is brand new. That's the second thing. First thing, I'm sorry. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, he says, we now have the mind of who? Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Does that mean we're Jesus? No. Please, if you ever think that you're Jesus, seek help. (laughs) You're not Jesus. You're not a little version of Jesus either. Let me be clear about that. You are an ambassador for Christ who calls you to live the gospel and, and rely on the thoughts and the regeneration that comes by renewing your mind in Christ. He deposits his spirit in us. And then Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, for anyone who is in Christ is what? A new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. It's important for you and I to understand this briefly this morning for this reason. I believe, and I'm thinking about myself, and I believe many of us can relate. I don't grasp this very often in my life. Many times I can look at scripture and think, I need to be this way, I need to do this. I need to call myself to, to, to specific behaviors and patterns. And spiritual disciplines are the things that transform us. There's no question about that. You know, the books on spiritual disciplines that you can read about some foundational things that you feed into your life on a daily basis. If you're not into spiritual disciplines, you can never become who God has called you to be. That's just a completely different message for another time. But the danger that we have sometimes is recognizing or not recognizing that the change that God is calling us to is not something that's external that we need to embrace. It's something that's internal that we need to allow to release through us. We need to feed the spirit that's already been deposited in us, not welcome him back into our lives. He's already here if you're a follower of Christ. You hear what I'm saying? So you're new. That means there is a, similar to, like I said earlier, the tug of war between winter and spring that's happening for the next couple days in our area, there's like a tug of war that happens in your heart right now. The tug of war of your flesh that says you are abandoned. You are without hope. You are a failure. You are imperfect. You are those things that the flesh says you cannot, you will always be. Your labels will always show you that you are this, you are this, you are this. And then there's a spirit that's planted new in you that says you're a new creation. You're made in the image of God. There's a hope that you never saw before because now the spirit that's placed in you speaks a new identity in your life. You with me so far? This is why, well, it's not why they spent 40 years in the wilderness, but it helped, I'm sure. When Israel left Egypt, he took them out of slavery. But for over 400 years, their generations were used to slavery. So just because you're pulled out of the situation doesn't mean your mind has changed, right? 
You can be removed from a situation and still see yourself a specific way. I remember friends of mine over the years, you know, I, I still, I still look at myself. I joke about it. I still look at myself as a short pudgy kid. When I was younger and kids, I, some of you know, I went back last Sunday, last summer during my, uh, last summer during my sabbatical, I went back to North, um, to, to Long Island to, um, to talk at Long Island. And I drove through the town that I grew up in. And I remember going down this road and I'm like, oh, this was the road that I was on the school bus. And there's a speed bump right there. And we would always sit in the back and we'd tell the bus driver to kick it. And then we'd go over the speed bump and we'd all like jump up off the ground. You know what I'm talking about? Like that was the best thing in the world. But then after we got past that, he turned hard right and he'd go up this hill and right at that corner, we would stop. And it was right at that corner that that kid told me he wouldn't give me a dime because I had hairy arms and I was a monkey. So he gave 10 cents to my friend and he wouldn't give me 10 cents. And I literally pulled around that corner and I sat down. I parked my car there and I went, this is where he called me a monkey. (laughs) Don't we remember these things? Right? Now, I know I'm not a monkey. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. How many times... Are things said to us over the years that get planted in our hearts and we believe that is truth, even though God calls us born again. God calls us new. God calls us a new creation. God says our identity is not in all of the wounds that have come by, the abuses, the people that have taken advantage of us. You can, you can unpack that in your life, and I don't know your life, and you don't know really mine, but there are so many things, that, and the sad thing about it is that sometimes we're the victim of those things, and sometimes we're the perpetrators. I know that because I'm human. I know that because we're imperfect people. So sometimes we have the imperfect problem where we are victims and sometimes we're the ones that perpetrate this problem. I'm sharing this with you because I can wrestle with this in my mind. I want you to just to take a moment, please, and just think with me. What would it look like in your life if you took a step back and said, when I made a decision to follow Christ, that old self that controls me and takes space in my mind rent-free to determine the outcome of my life has now been displaced by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God just wants you to listen, wants you to learn, wants you to live the gospel. Because when you do that, you hear truth from God. When you do that, you're, you're... your mind begins to be renewed as you fill it with something that's strong and healthy and pure. And just like a simple water bottle that's half empty, he wants us to fill us with truth and power and holiness and remind us who we are so that when the enemy tries to remind us of all those silly things over the years, or the, and then maybe they're not silly, maybe they've, just, they've wrecked you for years, but he wants to try to bring that stuff back to say, no, this is who you are. There's no room in the vessel for it to be filled, for it to go. It just overflows because you're filled with the word and the truth of God and your minds are being renewed. Does that make sense? This is so important for us to understand because when we recognize we're born again, when we recognize we have the mind of Christ, when we recognize we are new creations, when we're a new creation and we're being rebirthed, with that birth comes a new genetic predetermination. And the genes that God is giving us, the spiritual genes, one of the part of the genes says, You have been created to make disciples. You can't say, well, discipleship's not my gift. Mm -mm. It's not a spiritual gift. Discipleship applies to everyone. Everyone. You understand? Like, if you're not looking to help others grow in Christ, 
you're missing something. That's so significant. And I'm pausing and I'm saying it quietly and I'm saying it slowly because it needs to sink into my heart and I'm hoping that it sinks into some of yours that may need to hear that. We are supposed to be about disciple-making. We are supposed to be about helping people grow in relationship with others through Christ. Not just befriending people, but helping them know who Jesus really is. Now, how do we do it? What does it really look like? Maybe you have some of those questions, and I want to share just a couple brief things to you. You may remember, and we won't go back to the slide, but in verse 23 it said the Apostle Paul went strengthening all the disciples in the different cities, right? So he went and strengthened them. He probably encouraged them. He probably taught them the word of God. He was probably compassionate towards them, and he lived in a context of community. So those are some of the things that happened. But what I want to camp on this morning, just for a few moments, is the Acts 18.26 verse where it says this, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. And that last piece is what we need to look at, explaining to him the way of God more adequately. What does discipleship really look like, if I could boil it down? Explaining the way of God more adequately to others. And what did they do? They took a man who was schooled and learned and knew everything he thought he knew about Jesus accurately. And what did they do? They brought the truth to who Jesus really was. And I thought about the parallel in this world today. How many people do you know that believe Jesus walked the earth? How many people do you know that believe Jesus was a good teacher? How many people do you know that believe Jesus was a prophet? And how many people do you know that believe Jesus was the Son of God? See the difference? I believe Jesus walked the earth. I believe Jesus was a great teacher. I believe Jesus was a great prophet, but I don't believe he was the son of God. And if we don't believe he was the son of God, then his way is wrong and my way is right. So true disciples explain to others the way of God more adequately. And exactly what they did for Priscilla and Aqu- what Priscilla and Aquila did for Apollos, he took, they took all the truth of who Jesus was and they said, he is our Messiah. And you know the beauty of that is when we make that connection and we see him not just as a teacher or a miracle worker or a prophet, but we see him as the son of God who came to save the world, everything is supposed to change. Everything is supposed to change. I mean, this electronic Bible, and you may not be able to see it from where you are, but there's black words and there's red words, right? Black words and red words. You know what the red words mean, right? How many of you know what the red words mean? What does it mean? They're the words of who? They're the words of Jesus, right? This is the word, these are the words of Jesus. Now, the whole scripture is inspired, but if we really believe he is the Son of God, and we believe he is, as he said in John 14, 6, the way, the truth, and the life. His words should carry such a weight in our lives that we see them and we do them. Not in our own strength, because remember, we have the spirit that lives in us. So not only is he telling us to do these things, but he's giving us the power to do it because of the spirit that lives in our hearts. Isn't that cool? So we could hear the words and go, that's impossible. I could never be able to do that. No, Jesus says, What's impossible for man is what? Possible for God. In fact, nothing is impossible for God. 
So if he's calling us to be disciple makers, he will equip you and I to be disciple makers. We can make every excuse in the world why we think we can't be a disciple maker. I didn't go to school. I haven't, learned, I haven't known Jesus long enough. I haven't been in a relationship with others. I don't know how to sing. I could never do these kinds of things. And I remember so many times over the years, and I've told this so many times for people over the years, I didn't really understand how the word of God came together as one big story until I went for three years of seminary training. And I grew up in the church. But can I tell you, I look back and I'm like, wow, I can't believe how absolutely ignorant I was over those years and how I didn't know stuff and how I I served and I love people and I try to help and I read the word, but I didn't understand how it all came together. And you know what I look at? I didn't need to go to seminary to disciple people. I just needed to love them and I need to read the word and I need to pray with them. And you know what? God will meet you exactly where you are. You don't need to be as educated as the person next to you or as equipped as the person next to you to take a step. But don't be surprised if you take a step that God's not going to call you to take another step and another step and another step. You know, I remember so clearly the first month of my three-year seminary training was when I went down. And some of you know that story that I won't repeat about my grandfather um, dying of cirrhosis of the liver because of his methotrexate poisoning for 20 years of arthritis that he was that he was on and he was passing away in a few weeks. And I remember being on the phone with my pastor back then saying, um, I have no idea what to tell him. I, I don't know. I don't Let me do this. I don't know what to tell him. I don't know what scriptures to read. I don't know what I'm supposed to talk about. I don't know. And I'm sitting there going like, Lord, I just started seminary. Why would you do this for me now? Like, I don't have any idea what I'm doing. How do I actually talk to him about Jesus? And we walk through some of this stuff. And, you know, the short of it is, you know, before he passed away, he did accept Christ, which was beautiful. But God used that moment in my life to teach me something. And it wasn't, you don't have to be an educated person with a master's degree to be a discipler. You have to be a follower of Jesus and say, God, I give you who I have, who I am, the way that I am. And I'm going to walk take a step closer to you right now, the way that I am and trust you that if what I give you today is according to your will, you will multiply it and allow me to continue to grow closer to you and bring others along. Make sense? Like, I want to encourage you with that because do not disqualify yourself. Do not disqualify yourself from being a disciple maker because you don't know like somebody else knows. Every one of us has influence in different areas of our lives. Every one of us, and look at the size. If you look around the people that are in this building, there are people in different careers, in different relationships, different economic places of the world. They have different networks of people all around them, from their close family to their friends to their community and to their work environments. All of us are called to influence people with the one true fact that we need to explain the way of God to them more adequately. And what is that way? That Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. Chuck Colson wrote in his book many years ago, The Christian in Today's Culture, look what he said. He said, it is only Christians who have a worldview capable of providing workable solutions to the problems of community life. Thus, we ought to be in the forefront helping communities take charge of their own neighborhoods. God didn't call us to salvation so that we can only gather as people and experience everything that he calls us to experience and not give it away. What he's saying in this is that you're saved and transformed to change the world. Let your life change the world. The little light that's in your heart. You know that song? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Right? Some of you are like, what are you talking about? This song? 
And I remember as a little kid, like we would scream it, hide it under a bushel. Yeah, you know this. Hide it under a bushel. No. And we would stamp our feet. My mom used to lead um, Sunday school when I was a kid and we would do this in the one church. Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. You know, it's a simple idea, but it has incredibly huge eternal consequences, doesn't it? God has called us to be disciples. So if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, what does this look like? Well, let me ask you, how are Christians influencing the marketplace today? You know, God has called many people. He hasn't called everyone to be a pastor. We're a kingdom of priests, but that doesn't mean we're all called to be a pastor. He's called many of us to be business professionals. Blue collar, white collar, entrepreneurs, doesn't matter. How are you influencing the marketplace that he's called you to shine a light in? with the way. How are Christians influencing the government today? And, and don't say we stand and picket and wave signs and tell everyone that they need to, we hate them all. Like there are Christians that do that, but that is not the way to influence. And Jesus would never do that. He wouldn't do that. I mean, he would go in and flip over temple tables for different reasons, but that's not justification for us to be jerks to the world. And if we think that's the way we're going to change the world by acting like a jerk with no love, we need to go back and re- reread our Bibles. How are Christians influencing the government? How are Christians influencing the impoverished? You know, I've talked about this many times over the years, and I've thought about it. One of the greatest failures of our own country is the welfare system. It's one of the greatest failures. There always are going to be people in need, but somehow in our minds, the church, I think, has kind of taken a step back, and we've relegated our responsibilities to care for those that are in need to what the government can do for them. And now the government keeps taking over and making it more and more a thing. And the church can go, well, you know, that's why we pay our taxes. Jesus said Christians are called to change the world. How are we changing the community, the impoverished? How are we influencing the arts, right? Influencing the arts. I went back this past week and I looked at some of the music that I listened to when I was a kid and I was sick to my stomach. I used to read every, you remember CDs? Remember we had CDs? Some of you are like, I still have CDs. Well, not for long. You know, we have CDs. Remember all the album art that was in there or cassettes, all the album art that was in there? I would read every verse, every line, read who produced it, who were the the, the musicians, all the stuff. And some of it was, in my high school years, perverted. Perverted. And I'm not even going to list some of the stuff because I looked at it and I went, good Lord, what did I fill my mind with? Satan was the chief musician in the heavenly realms. Why are we surprised that music, one of the most greatest impactful ways of reaching the world, is full of filth and perversion. And can I ask you just honestly, as parents, if you are a parent, are you paying attention to that, to your kids? Do you know what they listen to? Do you know what they spend with their time with? I've said it many times, and my mom used to say, I could tell what music you're listening to by the way you treat me. And she was absolutely right. How are Christians influencing the arts? How are we influencing media? When Jesus is the way, all of these things get realigned so that we teach people there is a true way to experience healthy government leadership. There is a way to care for the poor. There is a way to take music and lift up and holy praise God almighty and honor him. You with me? Like it's important. The marketplace should be a place where our goal isn't just greed and making money, but it's to use those resources to change the world. That's the way it can happen, but it doesn't just go on a large scale. It goes right to our individual homes as well, or personally, Jesus is the way to your true identity. 
If you struggle with seeing yourself the way God wants you to see, he is the way. He will show you the way. Jesus is the way to becoming the best husband you're ever supposed to be. He's the way to becoming the best wife, to becoming the best parent, to becoming the best child. Are you listening, children? Jesus is the way. Well, my mom, my dad, he's the best way. Well, what does that mean? It means if you're rebirthed and the spirit of God lives in you, let his word let the community around you disciple you and walk alongside you. He is the best way to manage your time, your talents, your treasures. He's the best way to live in peace instead of unrest. And you know that that happens. You might be listening to all I'm saying, and you're saying, that's a lot of stuff for me to process for me, but that's why discipleship matters. Because there will be people around you that understand peace more than you do. There will be people around you that understand how to be a godly businessman or a godly businesswoman, and they can mentor you to do that. If you're a student and you're trying to figure out a career path, there are really bright people in the community of faith that can help you do that. If you're wounded and you need help and counseling because you're a victim of abuse, there are people in the church that have gifts that can help you do that. And you might be some of those people saying, I do have my heart's pumping to help people in this way or in that way. How many times over the years we've had children from broken homes or marriages that are on the verge of falling apart over the last 15 years or people that have suffered abuse or victims and they go they come to us and they say where do we go what do we do and you know how many times the answer is go see a professional counselor and pay 125 to 150 dollars an hour can i tell you how that breaks the heart of pastors breaks my heart that the answer to it and we know clinical people have a gift and we need those people in our world right But how many times could these things be solved by, I know a couple that's walked with Jesus for 30 years and they love you enough to invest their time into your marriage. I know a man who is a successful business person and and you, you have a hunger, but you don't have a lot of understanding and wisdom and they will pour into you. I know a woman who experienced the same abuse that you did and she wants to walk alongside you and share truth to you to disciple you and grow closer to Jesus. You with me? Like, that's the way it's supposed to work. So when we talk about growing the church, discipling the people, the way that the church becomes a larger church is by each one of us identifying someone to shepherd, disciple, and mentor. And as we grow, they grow. And as they get to a point and they grow to a specific place, they reach out to others and they begin to grow, right? Imagine what that would look like over the course of a couple of years if that's the way we lived, that we picked individuals and said, I'm, I see there's a need. I can help you with that need. Let me show you not just how to do it, but how to do it godly, how to do it Jesus' way, because our lives can be forever changed if we do that. That's why I really do believe, you know, and I posted something on my Facebook page this week from Rick Warren saying a number of years ago how... Um, Retirement is not a biblical concept. There's nowhere in scripture where he says that God has called people to retire and basically work most of their lives and then spend the last 20 years living for themselves. But we change roles. We change responsibilities. We take all the giftings God's given us and we pour it out. And can I tell you what happens in that? You gain life. You gain life. It's not just pouring out so that you feel empty. It fills you back up in a way that you will feel more life than you've ever had before. And it doesn't just apply when you're at the later years of your life. It applies as a lifestyle because we all need individuals to help us. We all need people to walk. We all need people to help disciple us. 
We're going to close here in a minute, and the worship team is going to come up. At this time, the people that are getting ready to participate in water baptism, I'm going to ask if you would come up and uh, go back behind the stage. You guys can get ready for water baptism. And as they're doing that, um, I just want to pause for a few minutes, and I want to share a brief story for you to understand the significance of water baptism. I can't tell you how many times over the years people have looked at water baptism And they've said things like, I'm not ready to be water baptized. And when you ask them what that means, they feel like they haven't lived a good enough life to be water baptized. There's no way I could be. It's like being water baptized is like telling the world that you're like without sin and that you're perfect. But the scripture shows us over and over again in the New Testament that when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are rebirthed by faith in him, It is in that moment, in that time, that you can be water baptized. Not because you've developed and you've matured and you've become this person of influence. It's because you're telling the world the old man is dead and the new one's alive. That's what it's about. Imperfect people. Imperfect people trusting in a perfect God. That's why water baptism is so significant. And that's one of the reasons why We don't just do it on Sunday mornings for people who sign up. We encourage everyone who's here, if they're followers of Jesus, to not, to participate in it. I'm sorry. If you've never been water baptized and you're a follower of Christ today, you could be water baptized today. You could get up right now and you could go back there and Pastor Matt will give you a bunch of clothes and you can jump on board and get in that tank and someone's going to get you wet. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And you know what that does? It helps you recognize that becoming a follower of Christ and a disciple of Jesus means I'm a student and he's the teacher. And when he says, believe and be baptized, baptize others in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, he's saying, trust in me in faith then take a step and walk it out and watch what I do. And it's a beautiful thing. It's not a guilt thing. You shouldn't feel any pressure. It's just a time to celebrate, to say, you know, I made a decision to follow Christ and the next step I really need to take is to go public with my faith. You may have been a Christian most of your life and have never been water baptized. Or maybe you did it when you were three years old or five years old and you don't remember any of it. The thing I love about believers' baptisms that we see here is that those that were baptized in Scripture knew they were being baptized unto the saving power of Jesus Christ. And we have people that have done that. I was baptized when I was little. I don't remember it. It didn't mean anything. Today I want to do something new. I want to make a public declaration that my faith is my faith and I follow him and him alone. That's powerful. So discipleship is one of the ways that we see people move into water baptism. I want you to think about this this morning because in a few moments we're going to have the water baptism. But here's what you're going to see. You're going to see two students get water baptized today. Pastor Matt's going to baptize two two students, which is great, from Connection Student Ministries. But then you're going to see another woman get baptized today. And here's what I want you to hear. If you go back 15 years in the history of our church, well, even before that, there's a couple that was part of our church back then. Some of you know them, Jim and Barb Thomas. Jim and Barb Thomas invested in their neighbor, Bob. Bob invested in his brother, Chuck, and his sister-in-law, Kathy. Kathy invested in her friend, Lisa, and her husband, Dave. There's Dave on the base over there. And today, hi, hi. 
And today, Lisa gets to baptize their friend, Stephanie. Think about that. Isn't that cool? Discipleship snowballs. Walking people along, walking alongside them helps them become everything that Christ has called them to become. So I'm just going to pray right now for a moment. We have a brief video to prepare this baptism. And then I just want to ask when the video is done and our first people come down and get baptized, let's just make this a celebration. Amen. Amen. God, we come before you this morning and we want to thank you for knowing you. We want to thank you for loving us. And we want to thank you for the opportunity for us to baptize and be baptized. Lord, if there's any person in this room today, right now, that's feeling the tug to be water baptized, I pray right now, they're welcome. You can just come right up and you can go right behind that door and they will help you and they will get you set up for water baptism. But God, I just pray in Jesus' name that every person that has made a decision to follow you today would experience a new life and through our obedience of baptism, you would show yourself powerful, faithful. You are so good. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.